This is a Future Cannabis Project podcast. Welcome to Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. It kind of connects you to the the cultivation side of it a little bit more if you grow the plants that you then turn into inputs for you know fermented plant juices and oriental herbal extracts and things like that um yeah just yeah. it's so much so much better and absolutely and that's you know that's part of one of the wonderful things that i've uh, enjoyed about the practice of korean natural farming uh, is that i feel much more connected uh, with the plants because I'm making all of the inputs that are going into the things that I'm growing. And if I'm also growing um, additional plants that are helping with that, then all the better. Uh, So yeah, no, it's super, super exciting. And um, definitely one of the things we will be talking about tonight. Uh, Peter, are we all set to go? Still working on it? haven't gotten the the high sign from you yet. Yes, we are. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, great. So this is Hood to Herbs Grow and Tell, and I really, really appreciate everybody joining us tonight as we get into the topic of Korean natural farming. And as I was saying at the very beginning, I think it's really exciting for me uh, to be the spotlight tonight because, uh, you know, Nick... We've uh, gone down some deep rabbit holes with you over a couple of the weeks so far, but it's good for me to uh, go ahead and throw out some of my uh, knowledge. And I'm excited to have you uh, contribute some deep facts and uh, some items about the interactions of some of those plants that we're talking about. So awesome to have you here with me tonight. Um, Very, very excited. Uh, So to start with, Korean natural farming uh, is a school of farming that has been uh, taught and promoted uh, in the United States by a gentleman named Master Cho, who's talked about as the father of Korean natural farming to a lot of us here. Um, Obviously, it's farming techniques that go back decades, if not centuries in Korea that um, he has kind of captured in this system uh, that we know today as Korean natural farming. And some of the aspects of Korean natural farming are involved bringing the natural environment and the natural inputs and the natural organisms from your environment the ones that are the most successful in your environment and using those to further cultivate and nurture your own gardens and plants. Um, They are in many cases, complete closed loop systems, ideally uh, involving animals as well as uh, practices for gardening and farming. Um, We talk a lot about using inputs from the natural world around us 
finding those plants and organisms that are, as I said, super successful in our environments. So we want to cultivate them, encourage them, and bring that magic into our cultivated space. So taking those wild organisms and kind of bringing them in to help you along. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful uh, set of instructions that focus more on the nutritive cycle of the plant and the things that the plant needs at different phases of its life as opposed to necessarily focusing on one specific mineral or one specific nutrient or one specific calendar in a bottle that everybody follows. It's more about the actual nutritive life cycle of the plant, uh, starting from its very beginning uh, germination uh, through its seedling phase into vegetative growth, then its transition phase, and then finally into reproductive phase. And in many cases, they follow similar patterns to humans as well, right? We uh, start out with that germination phase in the womb that moves us further down. And we need different things over the span of our life. We need different types of inputs, different types of minerals and nutrients at different phases of our life just like plants do. And so there's a connection. Uh, there's a consideration about the life cycle of the natural um, organisms that is a very much a large part of Korean natural farming and, and a part that I really connect with because there are just tremendous, tremendous connections between what we put into our bodies and our health. Um, and the same thing goes for our plants and our gardens. Um, so I think that's a, a fantastic, fantastic place to start. So how do we do this? What are some of the ways uh, that we look to incorporate and encourage that natural environment uh, to become part of our uh, cultivated spaces, right? Um, whether that's indoors or outdoors. Uh, I know many, many successful farmers uh, who use this at commercial scale, um, as well as many small scale home growers who are applying these techniques for themselves, like myself. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I had to do when I first learned Korean natural farming actually was actually scale down a lot of the recipes and things I was being taught because I don't need to mix a couple hundred gallons <laughs> of liquid IMO. I only need four gallons of liquid IMO. Um, so understanding um, how the approaches work and then figuring out ways to adapt them to our environments is actually very much a part of the practice. So it's, it's part of the, the growth and the learning and, and that connection as we, over time, develop our understanding of how to create these inputs 
and how to transfer that energy into the plants. Um, so one of the most interesting uh, things that we make, uh, one of the primary ingredients of Korean natural farming is something called IMO, which are indigenous microorganisms. And the IMO process uh, is actually something that takes some time um, and um, takes a lot of practice. Um, as well as being something that, you know, isn't always as successful as we hope. Sometimes it tends to be a little bit hit or miss. But the idea uh, is that there are several different levels of IMO that we go through as you're developing and sporulating these microorganisms and fungi uh, and capturing them. Um, to put them into a state where we can utilize them in our farming. Um, so indigenous microorganisms, what you, are you, what you are doing is you're utilizing a medium uh, to collect those organisms in the wild. Um, and primarily these are fungi and uh, bacterium. And you're then taking those organisms that you've captured and putting them into suspended animation um, until you're ready to utilize them. And at that point, you start to build them out and grow them, and as I said, sporulate them in many cases, um, and encourage their growth in a medium made of wood and grain. As you progress from that phase you then add natural soils uh, from your area so that you're introducing those natural microorganisms, those natural humic leaf molds, um, fungi, and different things that are in that layer of soil, mixing that again with that growth set that you had created and if you like, you can even go into a fifth stage where you continue to enrich that with a composted material, whether that is animal-based or worm vermicompost-based. Um, it allows you to then introduce um, some incredible beneficial minerals and nutrients into that mix. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about those different phases that I just discussed in a little bit more detail. To start off, we have IMO1, which is the capturing phase. And you use a rice, primarily we use a white rice that um, has been um, cooked uh, with a very low amount of moisture uh, and a couple of additional ingredients. Um, so that um, we take that rice and we put it into a cedar box, uh, a wicker basket, something that has some air, something that has some flow, something that's not completely airtight. Um, and you take that, you cover it inside that container. Most people use build a small cedar box. And these are 10 by 12 boxes, uh, inches, not feet. 
<laughs> um, it's something that you use about three cups of rice uh, in these collections. They don't have to be huge collections. And a, uh, a little goes a very, very long way. And so you take these boxes that you prepare with the rice inside and you cover them and you put them out in the woods and you cover them so that they can't get rained on because that all that you want to keep the water from pouring directly down into that rice and turning it all to mush so you do need to kind of protect your collection a little bit in some ways but you leave it out in the in the woods for five to seven days um, sometimes it really a lot of it depends on your environment the amount of moisture the temperatures it's something you'll have to practice. Again, learning your environment and adapting to how nature works in your environment. Um, so you make these collections. When you come back and pick these collections up, ideally what you find on top of that rice and actually throughout that rice is a wonderful white fuzz. Uh, a set of fungi and molds uh, and, and, and organisms that have collected on these on that rice medium. That's your IMO1. That's your collection. We then need to put these babies to sleep. We want to capture them. We want to keep them. And once you um, suspend them, uh, they can last a very, very long time. And you can use them... Um, many people who practice Korean natural farming do multiple collections at different times of the year, a spring, a summer, a fall uh, collection, uh, because you're going to have different types of microorganisms that are going to be successful, that are going to be stronger, that may show up at those different seasons and those different times of year. Uh, so they'll do multiple collections and they'll save these collections over multiple years. And then when they make uh, their uh, further uh, parts of the process, which I'll talk about in a minute, they use a mix of different collections uh, so that they get that um, full spectrum of different types of uh, fungi and microorganisms that they're going to introduce. So you take that rice and that collection of mold and fungus and, and you mix it with equal parts of sugar to suspend it. The sugar is the magic. The sugar, in many cases, is one of the primary ways uh, that we turn ordinary uh, materials and plants into magic uh, and inputs for our garden. Uh, so we take the sugar in equal weights and mix it with the rice and that uh, fungi, the wonderful fungi and molds and, and all that wonderful goodness that we collected. And that will basically put those microorganisms to sleep. Um, and uh, we put that into a jar uh, with a breathable lid. And we allow that to sit for at least seven days. At that point, we have a beautiful IMO2. So indigenous microorganisms have been collected by us. There's some rice in there, uh, starches, silicon, sugars, all sorts of good stuff uh, asleep with these microorganisms. Then we're ready for stage three, which is where the fun for me really starts. Um, 
to me, this is the, this is the exciting part because your collection may look good, but you get to actually see it in action in stage three. So stage three, IMO three is the first viable product for the most part that you can start using as an input once you're done with this phase. Most people will go to IMO4 or IMO5. Um, not only is it a stronger product, uh, it also has, um, because you're continuing to spread it out and sporulate it out, uh, you have a lot more of it, right? So when you get into that, every time you uh, work on one of these, you're pretty much doubling the size. So when you start out IMO3, you go to IMO4, you're doubling the size of that. When you go to IMO5, you're again increasing the size of it by like another 50%. So you're, you're going to have a lot more material if you go all the way to IMO4 and IMO5 uh, that you can use in a much broader sense uh, in applications for your garden, for your plants, for your farm. Um, IMO3, uh, is made by taking that collection and mixing it with water and uh, sugar and uh, fermented plant juice and um, starting a uh, basically a pile, a pile with wood chips and grain and some uh, water and basically this IMO2. And um, what you'll find is when you mix all those things together and you get them into a good size pile, uh, you actually will start, similar to composting, you'll start a reaction. These microorganisms will wake up and they will start converting all of that, all those grains, uh, some of the wood, uh, as well as the sugars and starches and other things that were part of that collection. And they'll come awake and they'll start uh, doing their thing and the temperatures will start to rise. Um, so you need to monitor your temperatures because you have to be careful uh, that you are encouraging the aerobic bacteria and not um, hurting them um, by going too hot. Um, and also you need to make sure that you're trying to keep a steady temperature uh, so that you have good growth of the bacteria and the fungal life without um, causing detrimental uh, uh, impacts. So you want to keep your compost pile in the, in the premium range running uh, for uh, several days. Um, you'll need to stir your pile um, sometimes multiple times a day to keep your temperatures once you start uh, as your temperatures accelerate, there's different techniques that you can use to spread and mix the pile to keep those temperatures down. Um, piling the pile higher, moving the pile wider will also help you control your temperatures a little bit as you work through that process. Um, the basic ingredients, as I was saying, for the IMO3, you start off with... Um, as I mentioned, your IMO2 collection, but you're uh, basically you're using like a couple of tablespoons, not a lot in, a, in your mixture. Um, most of the Korean natural farming preparations that I was taught use things in ratios and ratios are a great way uh, to mix things because it allows you to adapt them 
very simply to the size of the container you're trying to mix for. Um, and if you use something like liters, it makes things super easy uh, because one milliliter, uh, so if you have a one to a thousand ratio, one milliliter equals one liter. So if, you if you're making something that has four liters of water, then you use four milliliters of mix. Uh, so you can use uh, the ratios make things easy for mixing and um, we use um, a lot of one to 500, one to a thousand um, types of ratios on most of the inputs. IMO3 though, we're using FPJ and uh, brown rice vinegar, uh, oriental herbal nutrients, seawater, humic acid, and that IMO2 that I mentioned. Seawater. Very interesting, right? Um, salts. How many people are scared of dumping seawater on their plants? Seawater is actually, in many cases, as long as you're not overdoing the amount of seawater you're using, is actually really good for your plants because there's a tremendous amount of natural minerals and nutrients in that seawater, as well as microorganisms, which uh, can be beneficial uh, for your plants. Um, any comments on seawater, Nick? Take a break for a second here while I drink some water myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you mentioned, you know, seawater can be full of minerals and it can also contain some other trace compounds, um, you know, metabolites of the ocean, so to speak, if you're dealing with raw water like that. One of the drawbacks is the inherently high sodium load. Um, but I think one of the cool things about natural farming techniques and some of the inputs that are used is that those um, create little sinks in the soil where some of these other, you know, such as heavy metals and other contaminants or even some of these elements like sodium, which are useful for the plant, but only required in small quantities. You know, any excess amounts can kind of be bound up in humic substances or something else that's created in the soil as a result of this natural chemistry happening. So effectively you create a buffer uh, in the soil where the uh, tendency of things like sodium and chlorine to have harmful effects on the plant, um, they get buffered out. And so it's not as aggressive of an impact and the plants can, you know, probably uh, have a chance to uptake the rest of the minerals that are present inside of the seawater. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, the the seawater and, and actually introducing uh, aquatic microorganisms is very beneficial. That's what aquaponics is about, right? Uh, aquaponics is about uh, utilizing those beneficial uh, aquaponic um, aquatic um, microbiome that's going on there and uh, as well as the mineralization of the nutrients in the water that the plant is drinking to provide a really, really interesting uh, mix of uh, different, especially if you're using some type of uh, in-between medium uh, for flooding uh, those aquaponic uh, outputs. So really cool stuff, but let's stay on KNF. I don't want to go too far into a subject that really is better left to somebody like Steve Reisner. Um, so uh, brown rice vinegar also is a tremendous, tremendous uh, input. It's a very, very beneficial uh, for plants. Uh, brown rice vinegar specifically 
uh, is much uh, more beneficial in these preparations and inputs than something like a um, apple cider vinegar um, because it doesn't have the same amount, the same types of amino acids um, and, and uh, ability to help balance uh, pH uh, like a, a brown rice vinegar does. So uh, it's an interesting product itself. Humic acid, which uh, again, similar to what you were saying, Nick, humic acid is again going to also help with some of the binding of uh, things like chloramine. So if you do have uh, chloramine in your water, uh, you know, chlorine itself is going to dissipate with exposure to oxygen, but humic acid will help bind that chloramine and, and kind of make it safe and uh, keep it from affecting your plants. So um, there's humic acid in there, as I mentioned. Um, OHN, Oriental Herbal Nutrient, we'll talk about that in a little while, but that's a very interesting tincturing process, uh, which is also a lot of fun. Uh, so that's IMO3. And basically, like I said, you're, you're um, similar to doing a hot composting approach. You are maintaining uh, this pile of grains and woods, and you're trying to keep your pile under 120 degrees, um, and you need to keep uh, an eye on it. Um, it's amazing. You can turn your back on it. Suddenly, it'll shoot up and, sun, and, and start going to you know 125 and, and start approaching 130. You really got to get in there and start spreading that pile out and giving it a turn. You need to check your pile multiple times a day um, to make sure that it's continuing to go. At a certain point in time, though, after about five or six days, um, sometimes four days, again, it partially depends on your environment, those temperatures will start to... Uh, level off and then they'll start to uh, stabilize and decrease and at that point in time uh, your IMO3 is ready. Now IMO3 is something that needs to be stored in a breathable uh, pre preferably wood uh, container. Uh, you don't want to be storing it in plastic what will happen is you'll get sweating, uh, which can cause um, some anaerobic conditions at certain points in a bucket because there's no breathing going on. Um, you can cause re-sweating of your IMO that you just spent all that time stabilizing and, and basically trying to keep dry. Um, so it's uh, one of those things that um, was not... Um, necessarily um, communicated to me uh, yeah, that I learned from experience that uh, you want to stay away from using plastic uh, bins or tubs for storing your IMO3. You're better off with something that's breathable um, and, and definitely better wood-based. Um, there's some you can very easy uh, wood boxes that you can make to put your IMO in. And then you have IMO that lasts you um, an entire season, uh, sometimes even longer. I have IMO I'm still using that I made last year, um, and I'm going to continue to use that until next spring when I plan on doing my next IMO uh, collection and IMO 3 and 4 builds. Um, so after those uh, five to seven days, you now have your IMO 3, and again, you can store that, and you can start using it. Um, you can use it to um, immediately by actually make, you can take some and mix it in with your soil. If you're doing potting, uh, you can top dress with a little bit of it uh, around your plants. Uh, you can also use it in what's known as a liquid 
IMO, uh, which is basically doing a tea brew, uh, like a compost tea, but instead of doing a compost, using compost, you're using your IMO, this IMO3, IMO4, or IMO5 product. Um, IMO4 is a similar process to what I just mentioned with IMO3, but again, you're introducing on top of that existing IMO3, you're now introducing uh, those same set of ingredients again, plus soil natural soil that has good, um, you know, that has good uh, live compounds in it. You don't want to use some bagged soil out of, a, you know, nursery. You're really looking to go into your yard and dig up some topsoil so that you're collecting those, again, collecting those local microorganisms that are important uh, that you're trying to capture, those things that are successful in your specific environment. Everybody's environment's different. Um, you know, we talk about Humboldt County being a fantastic place to grow cannabis. Um, but the fact is, there are so many different zones in Humboldt County uh, that two farmers across the street from each other aren't going to produce the same cannabis. Uh, there's microclimates, there's uh, differences in soil compounds, there's different angles of light, uh, there's different amounts of shadows and trees and, and light cover and all those different things in all these different areas. Um, and it's the same thing. There's different sets of microorganisms and different um, fungal bodies and things that are successful in each of those different areas that have over generations and generations learned and adapted to become successful in those environments. Um, so uh, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to bring those extremely successful microorganisms, grow them and maintain them um, and then grow them again and then maintain them and then utilize them in, as inputs into your garden. So that's IMO, um, indigenous microorganisms. And I like to use IMO3 uh, with my liquid IMO, as a, as a liquid IMO uh, um, preparation. Uh, I tend to do that on a weekly basis for my plants. And that's pretty much the only feeding that I do. Other than that, I water. Um, and I'm using humic acid in my water and I may throw a little extra OHN or FPJ in there occasionally, but primarily I'm providing most of the nutrition and feeding to my plants when I built, when I brew out that liquid IMO, that's providing good fungal and bacterial life into my soil, along with FPJ and BR and the vinegar and the OHN uh, and some seawater and some of those things and brown sugar. It's creating a fantastic environment that will convert the natural organic compounds in my soil to a form that the plant can use. Um, and so uh, you are getting some water-soluble minerals and nutrients from that product as well, but primarily you are feeding the soil bacteria and fungi that will all be uh, sporulated out and grown out within this wonderful liquid uh, process that you're gonna apply. 
Um, and that's one of the main things that I've been doing since I learned this technique and, and created my um, created my first IMO3 batch. Um, and I've been using it and been relatively successful since with the process. Um, I can't say um, that um, there hasn't been occasional issues with some of my plants, but we all have problems with plants and I don't chuck that up to anyone a specific style. But um, that's IMO, and I want to make sure that we uh, spend some time on a lot of the different inputs. IMO is a really, really, really important part of Korean natural farming. It's something that can't be uh, overlooked or skipped uh, if you're truly trying to do Korean natural farming. And um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very important part, and that's why I want to make sure to spend some good time on it. Um, uh, another important input that's used and that I mentioned is FPJ. Um, there are two primary uh, similar sounding inputs that we make in Korean natural farming that many people are aware of and have heard of, which are FPJs and FFJs. Fermented fruit juice is an FFJ and fermented plant juice is an FPJ. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, Korean natural farming focuses on the nutritive life cycle of the plant. And the inputs that you use are based on the life cycle that that plant is in. And in fact, you are trying to be a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, you want to start providing those inputs and those nutrients to the plant a week or two before they actually get to that phase. Because again, you're focusing on feeding the soil. You're not directly injecting these things into the plant. And because you're focusing on the soil health and, and trying to generate a healthy biome for the plant to be able to get the nutrients and minerals that it needs, it takes time. Um, it takes time for those uh, things to be converted by that biome and made available to the plant. So you want to try to be ahead of the curve uh, as you're moving from the vegetative phase of life and you're moving into the transition stage and then the, the match, you know, that's kind of the teenage years. Um, and then you're moving into maturation and flowering. Uh, when you start that transition, you want to, before you start transitioning that plant and maybe screwing with your lights um, or doing things like that, you want to start feeding some good phosphorus uh, into that plant, at least in a cannabis plant's place, uh, and using some WCAP. Um, but we're talking about FPJs and FFJs before I go too far astray. And FFJs, fermented fruit juices are meant for the enhanced ripening phase of maturity, which is actually the end. It's when the fruits are finishing, when they're getting fat, when they're getting sweeter, when their terpenes and their flavonoids are coming out to an extreme amount, when they're putting tons and tons of weight on and just creating carbon, right, Nick? Creating carbon. Um, but these fermented fruit juices are high in sugars. And those sugars are very helpful 
to the plant at that phase of life. It needs those additional sugars. I know a lot of traditional growers talk about adding bricks um, or sweeteners uh, into their plants towards the end. They use a lot of molasses. Um, and those molasses, along with the calcium and amino acids and other things that are in there, uh, is providing sugars. And those sugars are helpful and beneficial in that later stage in life. Fermented plant juices, on the other hand, are for the vegetative and the growth parts of life. And um, I think this is FPJs and FFJs is one of the more common thing that I think people tend to cross and use um, incorrectly. And um, at least not as far as Korean natural farming uh, practices are concerned, um, you know, putting bananas and papaya and uh, some berries into a fermented fruit juice and then applying that to your seedlings is really not appropriate, right? That's, those are fruits and those sugars and things should be applied at the end of the plant's life, not at the beginning. What you should be using is vegetable or plant-based inputs. Green, leafy substances are what you're looking for. And in many cases, you're looking for the young growth tips. Um, and those, because you're, you know, again, you're trying to promote the type of structure, the, tr the type of vitality, the type of development that those plants have in their cells. You use the fruits to promote the fruiting stages and you use the vegetables or the greens to promote the vegetation, the vegetative growth stages. FPJs have one ingredient, not multiple ingredients, but one ingredient. And again, I'm talking Korean natural farming, traditional Korean natural farming preparations. One plant input. Um, and you want to utilize something, a plant that's local to you, something you find in your yard, something that you can collect on your farm, something that's probably known to you as a weed. Um, you can use uh, dock. You can use horsetail. You can use comfrey, as I mentioned. It's one of the things I like to use. Uh, you can use all sorts of different things. But what you're looking for are those really, really successful plants that are super healthy. And you want to capture those tips of new, new growth where the most vitality is in those plants. You also want to try to collect those plants early in the morning, right as the sun is coming up or right before the sun comes up so that they still have the dew on them, the morning dew, the moisture, because you're also going to get additional amounts of, uh, this is when the plant is actually at its most uh, succulent, when it has its most uh, uh, water retention. It also is has a lot of beneficial organisms that are only present 
during that period of time. Uh, so when you're collecting your items for your FPJs, you're trying to collect those things early in the morning when they're still covered in dew so that you can get the benefit of that prime time uh, for the plant's vitality as well as the additional benefit of having those microorganisms and that exist only at that time and in that place. And then you take that plant material, chop it up very fine, and then you mix it with equal weights of sugar. You take that preparation, you put it into a jar or container with a breathable lid. I like to use old t-shirts, cut them up into squares with a rubber band and put it over the top of the jar. It's a great way to make a fermented plant juice. Um, and you will let that ferment and sit for seven days. After seven days, you will siphon off the liquid, which is your fermented plant juice. And you can take that vegetable and put it in your compost pile, feed it to your worms, uh, do something so that you can take that material and put that energy back into your system in some way, shape, or form. Um, you can also make vinegars with those items. I know a lot of people tend to focus on the FFJs to make vinegars from, and that's one of the things that I've done uh, is make FFJs from uh, a... Um, make vinegar from the leftovers from my FFJs. Looks like we had, we lost Nick. Hopefully he can pop back in. Um, Cause I definitely want to talk to Nick a little bit about some of the, unfortunately he dropped right as I was going to jump to him. He must've known. Um, I wanted to talk to him about some of the interesting plants that he's been uh, working with uh, fermenting and using as different types of inputs because of the different beneficial aspects uh, of those uh, plants. Um, so that was FPJ. Uh, FFJs, as I mentioned, are actually made of three fruits as opposed to one. So FPJ, one, uh, is one plant and one item. Um, fermented plant juice is a rich enzyme solution out of plants that thrive in your local area. Um, it's one of the primary inputs that you use in most of your preparations. Uh, you can't make your IMO unless you have your FPJ already. Uh, so there's a couple of these things you kind of have to do in order uh, so that you have all the inputs together to actually create uh, some of the other preparations. Um, mugwort, dropwort are other good um, items, but you're really trying to uh, you know, ferment an extract of a rapidly growing plant, getting the chlorophyll and getting the blood basically out of these plants and turning that into something that you can add uh, into help your plants grow. Um, and I use that FPJ throughout my entire vegetative cycle uh, as one of the inputs. Uh, FJs, as I mentioned, are fruits. Uh, those are made from combination of three different fruits, uh, again, equal weights, chopped up finely um, and mixed with sugar, stored in a glass jar of some sort for seven to 10 days with a uh, breathable lid, uh, paper towels work, t-shirts, etc. And um, after those seven days, you can again strain off that liquid and you have your fermented fruit juice. 
Um, all of these uh, inputs and preparations uh, are, you know, for the most part, edible. Um, and some are quite tasty. FFJ is like jam. It's like jelly. Uh, it's just fruit and sugar, right? And uh, you put it in a jar and you let it sit, just like jelly is made, just like jams are made. They're fruits and sugars that are mixed together to preserve them. And that's really what you're doing is you're making a preserved ferment uh, that you can use in your plants. Uh, FFJs and FPJs tend to be good for three to six months. Um, after that time, you really need to uh, make a new one. Um, so it's not something that you can save forever. I imagine, um, I don't imagine freezing them would be good for them either because again, you're, you're trying to capture some of those natural organisms and enzymes that are present in those materials. Um, FFJs, um, I really just use FFJs in those last two to three weeks, um, of flower really when, you know, once the hairs have started to turn and, uh, some of the leaves are really starting to drop, it's kind of week five, week six, I start throwing some of that FFJ in there, uh, with each of my batches and, um, add that I'm using, I don't know, I'm using, let's say about, um, the, the mixture is one to 500. Uh, so if you're, that would be two milliliters for every liter. Okay. As opposed to one to a thousand, as I mentioned before, which was one milliliter for every liter. Um, you're doing one to 500. So that's two for every thousand. Um, so two milliliters for every liter of water. Um, I mix everything in gallons. So for me, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that's like 20 liters um, or 16 liters. And so I'm mixing things based on that. That's about 32 milliliters of FFJ. So I'm using 30 milliliters. I use about 30 milliliters in every four gallon batch of water I mix up for my flowering plants. And I've got three plants in flower right now. And I use that, I feed that four gallons of mixture to them every two to three days. Um, again, if I'm brewing a tea, I'm brewing a four gallon batch of the tea. And so um, I'm giving them, you know, it's a little bit over, it's about a gallon and a third each every two to three days. Um, they're getting that input in the flowering stage. They're getting that FFJ. So that's uh, FPJs and FFJs. Uh, let's see, Allie Muffin. Yeah, sure. Come on up, Allie. Why don't you join us? Um, I did say yes. Let's see if uh, we're having some problems with uh, letting people up or not tonight. No, it's coming through fine. I, I took my time hitting a button, but... Uh, okay, okay. You're trying to confuse me. It has me. been glitching slightly earlier on uh, in terms of people coming in and out, but uh, what a great convo, man. I'm so happy you're introducing us. Uh, I've been listening in the background. I've been learning. Um, I missed some portions. Like I said, I was in and out, but um, what do you think... I have a question. I mean, am I, I, I don't want to interrupt the flow, but what do you think is a good starter for someone that's not really un, like ready to commit yet, but wants that 
that we could make one change we could make in the garden tomorrow while we transition over to a more um, sustainable and regenerative approach. I think that's a perfect lead into my next uh, mixture, which is lactic acid bacteria. Labs. Labs, I love labs. Labs are like a miracle. Um, for those that are not familiar with lactic acid bacteria or lactobacillus, um, it is a fantastic uh, thing that is uh, so much a part of so many different aspects of our lives. Uh, above and beyond just gardening even. Um, lacto, uh, lactic acid bacteria comes uh, primarily, is made from preparation with milk and rice water. And we'll talk through that in a minute. But lactic acid bacteria is part of um, us. <laughs> it's one of the things that is part of our gut health and our gut biome. Uh, when we tend to add probiotics, usually we're adding lactobacillus um, and lactic acids to help us with our digestion. Lactic acid bacteria, along with yeast, is actually what makes bread rise. When you make sourdough um, and you go through the process of maintaining a sourdough starter, uh, you're like sporulating out this uh, continually sporulating out these natural yeasts using flour and water, but you also have this lactic acid bacteria that's part of that process and is part of what makes bread rise. Um, it's also a tremendous, tremendous input for plants and animals. So lab is a KNF process of culturing a batch of indig indigenous lactobacillus or lactic acid bacteria family microbes. Lactic acid bacteria is incredibly beneficial for crops, livestock, and humans. Um, I, I know um, if you have a stomach ache, you can take a tablespoon of your lab and you will, it'll make your stomach feel better. I've heard anecdotes of Chris uh, Trump using it to help cattle. Uh, they also spray lactic acid bacteria in chicken coops and pig styes to help eliminate odor, right? Imagine a smell-free chicken coop, a smell-free pig sty. Well, Korean natural farming has preparations to help with that. Um, I mentioned in the very beginning, Korean natural farming is a system. It's not just about plants. It also involves animals in many cases. And, and one of the favorite things of Master Cho are chicken and pigs. Master Cho loves chicken and pigs, and he's got a whole set of techniques around how chicken coops are supposed to be built, uh, how you prepare the bedding uh, using some of these inputs, and lactic acid bacteria is a very big part of that. Uh, you can use lactic acid bacteria to help reduce smells in outhouses. Uh, so uh, for, for well, natural... I was, okay, you led into something, and I didn't want to stink up the joint too much with an interruption, <laughs> but in... Yeah, in Iran, there is a history of folks that, um, you know, our houses used to be always in the in the back of the house in the alley, but with a little back portion of it open. And part of the city services was to come and collect 
what was in the outhouse. And this was used in the farming. And my great grandpa has passed down stories of literally at times, folks waiting in the morning with a shovel underneath the bowl for the morning um, you know, offering because they happened to be passing by and they knew someone was in the outhouse so they didn't want to miss out on, on that like resource. And it's something that um, was practiced as waste management for a long time in Iran. Yeah, there's a lot of other approaches when you start talking about Bakashi as well, which is very similarly linked uh, using lactobacillus and a bunch of other bacteria that are consortium of bacteria that actually create an anaerobic process that also can be used for fermenting and for uh, waste, uh, handling waste, which is tremendous. Um, one of the cool things about Bakashi is you can use it on everything, meats, bones, dairy, anything, all the things that you're not supposed to normally hot compost, you can actually uh, ferment with Bakashi and then um, it, you can use it in your soils and it'll break down. It's really, really neat stuff. Um, but, you know, uh, the rice, we use rice wash water and milk together to create lab. And it is the most simple thing that anybody can do. It is one of the most simple preparations that anybody can try. And regardless of how you garden today, you can actually introduce some lactic acid bacteria. Um, if you're in a hydroponic environment, you can do a foliar. Um, if you're in cocoa, you can actually put it into a root trench uh, within your cocoa. Um, you can use it obviously in soils. I use it as a root trench primarily, um, but it's also part of some of my other mixtures and preparations. Um, but basically, the rice wash water provides a poor quality food for the microbes. The only microbes that can make good use of the food is lab. And now we introduce lab-filled rice wash water with a high food source of fresh milk. And given its first shot, lab takes over and ferments the milk, causing the separation of the two proteins of the milk's two proteins and you'll get curds on the top and you'll get this beautiful yellow serum on the bottom. Uh, anybody who's left a glass of milk out for too long in their house has probably seen this reaction before. It's very similar. You do need to use the rice rinse water if you really want to get a strong lab culture because those uh, starches uh, and sugars that are part of that rice rinse water are going to help promote healthy lab. Um, lactic acid bacteria. So take those curds off and you can actually save those curds, press the moisture out of them and make your own cheese. So you could actually start learning to make your own cheese. I know uh, Wendy Cornish has a, um, uh, a mozzarella. She's made, she's made a couple like mozzarellas out of the cheese that she's done her lactic acid bacteria off of. Um, but basically you mix sugar and those curds together. Uh, you can take those curds and fry them. Anybody who likes, uh, Hey, Ali, we got Ali, the Canadian in here, poutine, man. Uh, you want some che Woo! fried cheese curds? You could take those curds off your lab and throw that on top of your poutine, man. Um, so, get those curds. You got to bring those cheese curds in. Um, that material though, you can use that. I, I think lab is a fantastic gateway, uh, Korean natural farming preparation. Uh, it's some, most people have milk. 
Uh, you want to try to use whole milk. Uh, one of the things that I learned um, that I wasn't, I didn't actually really know a lot about was um, how they make, uh, how they turn whole milk into 2% milk and 1% milk. Well, and basically, and also yogurt the other yep. way around. Correct. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we would not have yogurt, pickled olives, kimchi, sour cream, or any of those things without lactic acid bacteria, actually. And um, so what they do is they take milk and they, they pull curds out of the milk to make 2%. That's the reduction of fat. They're actually pulling curds out of the milk. And so they do a single run of curd reduction, which gives you a 2% milk. And then they do another run of curd reduction, which gives you 1% milk. And then they do another run that strips out every last remaining curd for the most part and leaves you with pretty much just white, uh, gray water, uh, skim milk. Uh, <laughs> um, so whole milk is the best thing to use for this product. I know some people use goat's milk. Uh, you can use cow's milk. I know some people actually have made these, uh, some of these preparations with um, non-animal milks. I, I'm not too sure how that works, but I think soy milk was a better option than an almond milk, but I'm not really too sure I can help direct some folks towards that if they're really interested. Um, the um, One imagines um, that the soy, and I don't know this, so please don't quote me, but um, maybe uh, I can ask the, the YouTube watchers and something might come up whether uh, the cashew cheeses, the um, uh, cashew cheeses, almond milks, and soy milks, uh, maybe they are also a bacteria that is predominantly um, thriving in vegetation, and, and we should all learn about that as well. It's, it's interesting how they make those milks, uh, and I don't know uh, the process well. Yeah. So, um, so now we have this wonderful, wonderful tool that we can use. Lab is a germicide that promotes growth of trees and leafy vegetables. Lab boosts gut health uh, and is used in KNF for no-smell livestock systems. It's a fantastic thing. You can use it for your own use. Um, and I mentioned this early, but it's really important. A lot of Korean natural farming involves smell and taste. Uh, when we're making these preparations, most of them we can eat and we can taste them and tasting them and smelling them and making sure they're sweet and not sour, uh, making sure that they haven't, um, that they smell earthy and not rotten. Smell is a very powerful tool and a, a very important part of your Korean natural farming and your preparations. Um, you know, I was talking about IMO earlier. IMO is amazing. When you make IMO three, it smells like sourdough baking. It smells like you walked into a bakery. It's, it's amazing. Uh, one of the cool things that, uh, Chris Trump does at his classes is, um, he, he, everybody does what we call the KNF foot spa. And everybody takes their shoes and socks off and sticks their feet into the cooking IMO pile, uh, which is like 160 degrees, right? It's not enough to burn you, but it's definitely warm and you can feel it. And it's like a foot spa. Um, and you get the tremendous benefit of all of these living organisms and uh, microorganisms and, and things that are in that pile sporulating. Um, and and um, Chris 
has claimed that it, you know, helps with a lot of, uh, you know, skin and toe fungus conditions and different things. It's just a tremendous uh, tool. And he does bury some people as well, not just uh, doing the foot spa, but some people actually get in there and actually get buried. They don't get naked for that because that would just be bad. Um, you'd be pulling IMO out of cracks and crevices for weeks, but um, they do get, uh, they do get buried. He does bury people in the IMO as well. So they get that full body spa of approach and, and all of those natural microorganisms and that exchange of the human microorganisms with the microorganisms in the pile that are being sporulated. And you know, it's about a connection with your uh, inputs. I mean, your own, uh, your own microorganisms are actually now part of that pile. They're being sporulated along with those other tremendous ingredients. So um, it's, it's really, really great, uh, great stuff. I, um, um... I have noticed and I was told, and this is good, that uh, my compost always smells sweet. And uh, I took a photo of the, what's in the, under the sink. I noticed for me, I have to continuously put some uh, napkins. I use quite a few, unfortunately, but one of the cool things is I'm now able to even put straws because in, in our city, they're mostly turning into paper. So yep. that sweet smell of the compost, how much of it is an indicator? And like, is it bad when it smells sour? Um, I was told it, it is. And I was very curious to ask you tonight. What? Yeah, what because that's the, some of the how our nose guides. Yeah, that's some of the difference between um, how, you, how your nose can actually smell the difference between those aerobic and anaerobic conditions, right? Um, and, and it's not I would caution saying bad. Um, I think there's a lot of conversation around this uh, that's being had because nature doesn't have just aerobic bacteria. It has anaerobic bacteria as well. All of these things work in conjunction together. Um, you need putrefaction. You need um, things to mold. You need uh, things to break down uh, in different ways. And um, sometimes that's the only way to break some of these things down so that they return to the ground. And um, so I, I, um, in general, that, that's kind of that difference, though, is that aerobic activity tends to smell better. A good, a, 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 a good maintained compost pile does not stink, does not have a ton of flies and exposed food rotting away in the sun. Uh, a well-maintained compost pile has a good mix of browns and greens. Uh, it's being stirred and maintained and monitored for temperatures and moisture and things like that until it's dried and prepared. So absolutely a good compost pile should not smell rotten. Um, but uh, that being said, there are other farming approaches and schools of farming that do use things like putrefaction and anaerobic processes to break materials and minerals and things down uh, to help them turn into plants, uh, plant food. Uh, in some way, shape, or form, or food for other forms of life, maybe for fungi, uh, for um, you know, bacteria, and other uh, things that are part of the soils. So let's talk a little bit about um, 
Great question, Ollie. Thank you for bringing that up. I think, again, I think um, either OHN or FPJs, but I think OHN is really um, unique and it's something that you're going to be, can be used really as an additive on top of whatever you're already doing. Um, so you don't necessarily have to change what you're doing today and you can introduce that. FPJs, um, FFJ is probably towards your ripe in your ripening phase would also be something that I would recommend considering adding in to see if it helps, uh, you know, with some of the fattening or some of the sweetening or some of the smell or stinkiness of those plants. Uh, so OHN is another one that I had mentioned in, in some of these preparations and that's oriental herbal nutrients and oriental herbal nutrients are a, um, are basically create the best disease fighting health tonic for your plants and animals. Um, it's basically a tincture uh, that uh, was considered uh, a warm herb tincture in traditional Chinese medicine, helps strengthen uh, plants and animal immune systems. And uh, again, I'm sorry that Nick had to drop off because Nick was going to, I wanted Nick to talk to the Angelica again. Um, but OHN is made up of several different uh, extremely well-known beneficial herbs and roots. And so those ingredients are angelica, licorice root, cinnamon bark, garlic, and ginger, all of which have been known to have good health benefits, um, good antioxidant, good medicinal uh, benefits. Um, licorice bark was used for pain. Uh, cinnamon bark has been used for um, helping with um, helping um, get people's uh, systems running uh, and helping spur along um, uh, their um, oh, it's escaping me helping with their um, with their uh, digestion. Uh, garlic is good for the blood. Um, it's also known to help keep pests away. Uh, ginger has a lot of fantastic qualities to it as well. And each of these has, um, as I mentioned, known health benefits, but they also have known um, anti-pathogenic capabilities. And OHN is probably the longest time process that you have to do. It takes about three months and it's a uh, process of tincturing uh, using vodka, not grain alcohol. I know a lot of us think about grain alcohol or use grain alcohol in a lot of our preparations and things, uh, converting cannabis and other things into tinctures. Uh, we use grain alcohol and other things to break the material down. Um, but in um, when you're making OHN, you actually want to use vodka. You want to use something that you don't need a ton of high proof. You want to actually stick with something that's a much lower proof. Um, the cheapest vodka you can find, you know, again, if it's something you want to put into your body and into your plant, maybe you don't buy the cheapest vodka on the shelf. Maybe you buy something that's a little bit better, or maybe you buy something from some local distillery that's making vodka um, out of uh, local grown organic potatoes or something. I don't know. Um, but, you know, again, if you're going to, if you're going to go all the way, go all the way, right? Um, I have to think about finding somebody locally who makes some vodka, maybe. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> or at least, 
uh, getting my buddy with the farm who has potatoes to as organically the, grow potatoes I, and getting those potatoes as, over. As uh, soon as they legalize cannabis, this man is going towards moonshine, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I got I to gotta stay in the background, man. I got to stay in the background. Um, but yeah, no. So, so we use vodka with those materials, angelica root, licorice root, cinnamon bark, uh, fresh ginger, and uh, fresh garlic. And basically, we tincture these uh, in a mixture together for, um, as I was mentioning, multiple months. We do multiple extractions over that time period. So we start out actually by um, first re-adding um, moisture back into a lot of the main materials using beer. Uh, so we'll grab some cheap beer and mix that with our cinnamon bark, our dried materials. So cinnamon bark, licorice root. Um, Angelica, those things tend to be dried, uh, come dried in preparations. Um, and I was in a really interesting conversation yesterday uh, in the KNF room, actually, where we were talking about uh, Angelica being a plant that's hard to grow and uh, something that um, isn't, isn't actually as prevalent as it once was. Um, it's a, becoming a much more rare plant. So if anybody's interested in making some money, you might want to consider growing some angelica instead of cannabis um, or including some angelica on your farm with your cannabis. Uh, but angelica is uh, the angelica root is usually purchased dry along with licorice root, cinnamon bark, they come dry. And so you need to rehydrate them using beer. So we'll stick them with beer and let them rehydrate in 24 hours. And then the next day, what we're going to do is actually mix those uh, rehydrated materials uh, with sugar. And we're going to make an FPJ uh, with garlic and an FPJ with ginger root. Um, again, these are roots, not fruits. And um, so they're FPJs, kind of. And uh, that's the first stage. And we're going to go through the normal FPJ process with the seven days of uh you know, with an open lid, the sugar, the material, letting it go and, and ferment. And then we're going to add the vodka and we're going to start that tincturing process. And we're going to stir daily, every day. And this is one of the things that, uh, you know, OHN is more of a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and it takes, like I said, it takes a couple months. So it's something you have to do every day. You got to go in there and you got to stir these jars every day for that tincture. Uh, it helps that material break down and combine with the vodka. Um, after two weeks, you will strain part of the material out and add more vodka into your, uh, you know, you'll, so you'll, you'll siphon off some of the liquid. And then you'll add vodka back into that tincture. And then again, do your two weeks and stirring every day. And you'll do that process five times. Every time you do that, you recombine all those materials back together and then siphon off some of that material and then add some uh, fresh vodka back in. And you keep doing that. And so at the end, you actually end up with double the volume you started with of this magical um, tincture, these beautiful glowing jars of uh, OHN. And you actually store them separately. You keep these things in their original uh, jars. You cite, you pull off the uh, the materials, the you know the roots, the bark, the ginger. You get rid of those again, putting them in your compost. 
uh, or something along those lines, and then you keep that liquid. And that liquid uh, needs to sit for another three months uh, before it's actually ready to start being used. So about six months, OHN is mature and ready to start being applied and gets better with time. After a year, it's actually uh, starts to really hit its stride. Two years, it starts to peak. Um, and my understanding is it goes on for several years. The older it is, the better it gets. And uh, it's, it's so, you know, you want to make these uh, something like an OHN, which you're going to, um, again, takes you three months and can last you years. It's a good idea to make a big batch uh, so that you have enough to last for a long time. And um, I really enjoy this process. There's something about the tincturing process that I, I, I really enjoyed. Uh, must be my background in cooking because um, it's just, it's, to me, it's a fun preparation. And the end product is amazing. Um, and so what you do is you, when you're ready to use this and utilize this OHN, all these wonderful tinctures that you've created, you combine them in equal parts um, and mix them in with all of your other preparations. Um, and you're using a one to a thousand ratio for your OHN. So it's a little bit, it's half of as much as FPJ you would use. Um, going back to my example earlier, uh, if you're using, uh, it's one milliliter per liter and uh, FPJ was two milliliters per liter. And, um, <clears throat> four gallon batch, I'm using about 15, 16 milliliters of OHN. So it lasts a really long time, um, which is good because it takes a really long time to make. Um, and OHN is just great. Uh, again, it's an antipathogenic. It's, it's, it's a wonderful part. It's part of all of these other preparations. So you really need it. And um, it's great if you're feeling a little under the weather, you're starting to feel a little sniffly, um, or you need a little energy, take a shot of OHN. Uh, and it will definitely give you a, a, an immunity boost. Um, it, it definitely is a really strong product that kind of, you know, I've had a couple times where I was a little sniffly and I just took a couple shots of it and, and garlic and ginger and all those good things helped clear out my sinuses and um, I felt good. I was ready to do, uh, I was ready to go after that. So it's, um, it's, it's a fantastic product. I really love uh, OHN. Um, again, it's fun to make as well something I really enjoyed. And, and in general, I enjoyed this, the process, um, getting in there, using your hands, uh, mixing plant with sugars and creating these uh, wonderful, wonderful inputs. Um, another thing, um, some of the other preparations that um, we'll, we can go over that I'd like to mention are uh, things like WCA, calcium. So uh, everybody knows CalMag, 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 more CalMag, more cowbell, right? But uh, calcium, uh, you can actually make your own calcium, uh, water-soluble calcium, if you save your eggshells. Um, or you can use oyster shell if you have some oyster shell um, that there, you've bought. Yep, there was there was a beautiful display and here's the natural in Korean natural farming of the seagulls grabbing shells, bringing them up the beach, eating through them, breaking them in the process and slowly depositing this sediment 
and calcium back into the bit of um, uh, grassy sort of hillsides that lend themselves to growth near beaches. So anywhere that there's a cliff, there's a park, you can clearly see the seagulls fertilizing the uh, the grass right beside the beach. Um, it's it's you can't miss it. Yeah, it's, 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 um, and again, it's, it's introducing those natural things into your garden. Um, you can take those shells and crush them and mix them with vinegar and allow them to ferment for seven to 10 days. And you come out with water soluble calcium, uh, eggshells as well. Eggshells need to be heated. Um, and I recommend you do it outside in a cast iron skillet over open fire. Um, and, uh, you can use a cardboard to kind of wave the, what well, that inner lining of the egg shell, the egg that sticks to the inside of the egg shell, that kind of, um, you know, membrane will, uh, burn off and, and turn to dust. And so if you, if you fan, use a piece of cardboard or something and fan as you're stirring these eggshells over the heat, uh, the membrane will just dust and turn to dust and, and float off and, and you're left with these beautiful porcelain like eggshells. Uh, you want to cook those eggshells so until they become brittle. And then you take the eggshells, you don't want to burn them, do not burn the eggshells. And again, this is why I recommend you do it outside because it's not a pleasant smell. Um, you want to go ahead and uh, mix those and, and leave that in that, uh, you need a jar with a breathable lid. As soon as you add the vinegar to those eggshells or to those oyster shells, you'll get an immediate reaction. Uh, in many cases, it'll bubble over the top. So you want to make sure you put it into, you know, put it into some place that you're not as concerned about it, uh, bubbling over, have a runoff tray or something in place. And, um, once that preparation is done in seven to 10 days, you just, again, filter off the liquid, get rid of the, the shells, and you're left with water-soluble calcium. All the calcium you ever need is probably in your refrigerator right now, uh, getting ready. And every time you make eggs or uh, create anything else that you're using eggs in, save those eggshells. I like to rinse the eggs and save them in a jar until I have a nice collection together. And then I'll go and I'll cook them over the fire and get them nice and hot and make some nice fresh WCA. And you can save those cooked eggshells so that you can make uh, more preparations. You don't have to do it all in one shot. You can save the egg the cooked eggshells so that you have them ready to make another batch as soon as you run out. Um, it's good. Uh, you know, it takes a little planning with some of these preparations. You know, you can't just go to the store. You need a week. Uh, in some cases for them to go and some cases longer. Um, so you do need to think a little bit ahead uh, for some of these, but in general, it's a pretty fast preparation. I mean, seven days and you have your own calcium for free. Um, and all you had to do is use some brown rice vinegar and some saved eggshells and you didn't have to go buy calcium and you're good to go with something natural, especially if you have your own chickens or you have some farm raised, you have a friend who has chickens and your neighbor Get some of his eggshells. I'm sure he has plenty. Um, and uh, use those uh, organically grown eggshells uh, as inputs for your calcium. Uh, another input that you can make uh, for yourself is WCAP, uh, P for phosphorus. So water-soluble phosphorus. 
and we make water soluble phosphorus using bones, beef bones. Uh, so if you take beef bones and char them again on the grill, I love fire, get some fire. Uh, you need to burn the shit out of these bones uh, and cook them so that they are thoroughly cooked and have no, no longer, no brown or marrow is left on the inside of these bones. And you want to cook them so they have a good black or gray and become brittle. And then you break them down and mix them with vinegar. And again, seven to 10 days, and you have your own water-soluble phosphorus. Phosphorus is super important for many of the life stages of the plant, but is also something you want to boost up when you're in that transition phase. Phosphorus is for... Um, is great for um, transition phase for getting into that for when that plant is maturing and getting ready and you need a little bit of extra strength in the body um, for the growth that's going to be coming and, and to sustain a strong structure develop a strong structure to support those fruits when they develop um, so it's uh, really important to get that phosphorus in for the plants and use that as part of that transition phase that I mentioned earlier, that kind of teenager phase of life in that life cycle. Then you have, um, so I could, so I could consume that. Yeah. I love it it's because I am in my teenage years. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure you could use some more phosphorus. Um, another one is potassium. So we use old, old potassium as a big thing for flour and for fruiting. Uh, potassium uh, comes from uh, basically a biochar preparation. So um, primarily we use uh, sunflower heads or asparagus, uh, something high in potassium. And we, again, char them, make a biochar out of them with a covered uh, iron skillet. Uh, over fire, and uh, you want to. You have to be careful not to allow oxygen into too much oxygen into the process when you're trying to turn the stuff into biochar, because what will happen is it will burn and turn to ash. And you're really trying to capture as much of the material and phosphorus as possible. So you're trying to avoid uh, letting too much oxygen into the cooking and that causing your sunflowers or asparagus to turn to ash. I've always had a question about this. Is it like decarbing? And may I, would I be able to get away in an oven setting at high heat, leaving it over a longer temperature to be safe and slower in my methodology? Methodology. I can't comment on that. I would be because I'm scared cautious. Because what? Yeah, I mean, I would because you because you're bringing it down to that like level where it's going to be smoking, and I don't know that you want that in your oven in, inside your house, my friend. Okay, so we're re literally trying to get all of the biological matter smoked out of it. I understand yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You want to, every bit of chlorophyll has to go out. Um, and all that, every bit of moisture has to come out of it. You really, but you want it to be that like black, um, but solid, uh, you still want to be able to see almost that honeycomb of material and the sunflower and things like that. So, um, then you, you basically take that, um, material and mix it with water. 
not vinegar this time, just good dechlorinated rainwater. Um, and um, seven to 10 days, the water gets like a bluish tint to it too. It's really cool. Um, and then you have your own water soluble potassium. Um, so we've talked about a whole bunch of uh, inputs. Um, we've covered IMO, indigenous microorganisms, FPJ, fermented plant juice, FFJ, fermented fruit juice, lab, or lactic acid bacteria, or lactobacillus bacteria. Uh, we covered WCA, water-soluble calcium, WCAP, water-soluble phosphorus, WSK, don't ask me why it goes from WCA to WSK, I don't know, but water-soluble potassium, K being the potassium, um, all those different preparations are the majority of the things that we make and we use in Korean natural farming. There really is not much else. Vinegar, sugar, seawater, and the inputs I mentioned. That's it. It's your whole toolbox. Everything you need uh, to maintain to grow and maintain healthy plants. Um, as I mentioned, it's a system that you can eat. And in many cases, many of these preparations are very beneficial to us. And they're tasty uh, in, in, as well. Like that um, OHN, the um, OHN, that garlic and that ginger, those, I wouldn't like use them as a cocktail unless maybe I was making like a Bloody Mary. I think they'd be amazing in like a Bloody Mary or something, but um, you can cook with them. Um, you can uh, like a stir fry or saute with some of that ginger tincture, vodka, or some of that garlic. Wow, amazing flavor. I did, um, I recently, I'm just about to finish off one with that I made, uh, I've added uh, an additional jar with turmeric because turmeric is also a very uh, holistic health benefit. There's a whole bunch of health benefits with turmeric, as well as a lot of plant benefits and natural enzymes that are there um, that are part of that. And um, we, uh, that turmeric as well, I'm, I'm interested in, in actually trying some of those preparations for cooking as well as um, using it as part of an OHN mixture. Um, so really, really um, amazing. And, and the ability to create these inputs, that I'm, the things that I'm feeding my plant, the ability to actually, um, you know, be able to use these inputs myself for my own health benefits. Um, everything that's going into the plant is something I can consume. Uh, I'm consuming the plant. Um, so plants are more healthy. Um, I'm getting more benefits out of healthier plants. Um, in addition, it's part of a regenerative system. Um, and if you're trying to move towards a regenerative approach, uh, an appro a closed loop approach, then Korean natural farming is, is something that should be considered because you're using the things that you have around you as opposed to bringing things in from the outside, right? 
I sometimes wonder, like, why are you using oyster shell if you're in Kansas? Right? Um, why are you using green sand if you're in Maine? Um, we use these products and we ship these things all over the, the globe and it's really bad for the environment and really not very beneficial for our plants at the end of the day when we could be using inputs and ingredients that are local to us. Um, another great thing about Korean natural farming that I've been told by people who are using this process commercially is that it is tremendously cost, there's a tremendous amount of cost saving involved in it. Uh, because again, you're not buying nutrients uh, and inputs for your plants. So you're not spending the money on that. Uh, sugar and vinegar are much, much cheaper <laughs> than uh, any nitrogen or any other product you're going to be buying from any commercial industry. Um, and then because you're getting you are creating healthier soil, you have less weed pressures. So you don't need to apply, uh, you know, weed deterrents and fungicides and other things like that. Um, you are able to, um, your plants are able to partially defend themselves better and have more beneficial bacteria and fungi present so they're able to ward off the bad guys more easily so you have less pest pressure um, so you're saving money on pesticides and predator pests and um, other things that you might have had to do as well as all of the labor associated with applying those things it's not just the cost of the fungicides and the pesticides and the defoliants and all of these weed controls and these suppressions and all these other things. It's all the labor also associated with it that has a tremendous amount of cost. And these things are not good. In many cases, they're not good for the people who are actually applying them. You know, there's always got to be a strategy of, and this extends to businesses and also the home garden of prevention and you really got to decide early on on where you want to concentrate your energy because you can either do what you're discussing jason preventatives that are constant and sustained um or remediation that will also be constant and constant and sustained so you just got to make that decision early on and um, in the business sense, even on a larger scale, we, I think of it as at times having to skip uh, productive, quote unquote, durations to catch up on these remedial acts so that we can always be acting in a preventative manner, which is, of course, just a better, a better um, use of resources uh, and, and your own time because it will take less time to prevent than to remediate any issue that is right and and um that gives us more free time to scout um and create more inputs and uh check plant health and you know um all the other things that we could be doing that we never get to because we tend to be spending a lot of time on just the basic maintenance of the plant right um so that's that's really um 
that's really all beneficial. Um, and you know, as a home gardener, I don't go to the grocery store other than if I need a fan (laughs) 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 or a new tent or something, because I'm not buying any bottles. I'm not buying anything on the shelf there, uh, other than maybe occasionally some Epsom salts. Um, I don't have to get bottles of nitrogen and phosphor NPKs and I don't have to buy calcium and I have to do any of that stuff. I have it all at home. I make it myself and it lasts for months and I don't have to do anything else. It's, it's been a tremendously freeing system to be honest with you. Um, it uh, above and beyond the connection I have because I'm preparing all of this stuff. It also, um, has been freeing because I, I can get my ingredients at the farm stand. I can get my ingredients in my backyard. I can get, uh, if I need some grains or some wood chips or something, I go to the feed store. I don't need to go to a gardening store. I don't need to go to a grow store. I don't need to pay for something that's 99% water in a bottle. Um, I can make my own inputs. I can apply them to my plants and they're beneficial for myself and they're beneficial for the environment around them. I apply these Korean natural farming practices not only to my indoor cannabis plants, but I'm also applying them to my outdoor gardening, my fruits and vegetables, my tomatoes, my herbs that I cook with. Um, I spray them, uh, I mix uh, some of these ingredients like labs and other things into my mulch uh, I'll spray them into my mulch piles before I'll spread my mulch on my uh, on beds so that all those microorganisms and things are kind of wound up in the mulch that I'm spreading. And so they give those beneficial aspects to the plants and the soil. Um, I'm improving soil health, uh, which is helping capture carbon and uh, increase the value of the minerals and the nutrients that the plants are receiving, which in turn I'm turning into inputs that are putting back into my plants. And I'm creating this nutritive cycle uh, of health and wealth and uh, beneficial uh, benefits for myself and my environment around me. So all great stuff. I love, um, I feel so blessed, so uh, you know, just tremendously grateful uh, that my friend Ben Morgan dragged me to the Regenerative Cannabis con- Conference, and I got to see Chris Trump speak. And then, uh, you know, a couple months later, he's like, "We're going to go see Chris, and we're going to go take the five-day hands-on class." I'm like, "Okay," and we went. And we did the five-day hands-on class, and it really just completely changed. Those two things completely changed how I looked at cultivation. Um, and completely changed my approach to cultivation and growing everything I do, everything I think about in my plants, um, and, and in my own health and, and well-being as well as changed, uh, because of my learning of Korean natural farming practices. So I'm forever grateful to the folks who like Ben, who dragged me to those events and to Chris Trump for what he taught me and all the tremendous uh, people in the Korean natural farming community that I continue to talk with and learn from all the time. Uh, Kobe's been a tremendous mentor, uh, Jess out here on the Cape. I mean, there's just so many fantastic people out there who are part of this Korean natural farming family. And, um, 
it, it's 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 been a wonderful it's been a wonderful trip and um, as you can tell i love talking about it uh we've we're approaching almost the two hour mark we've gone for an hour and 40 minutes i didn't take a break i didn't relight the room i didn't thank future cannabis project peter for being here uh, so i'll do that and of course i want to thank ali muffins and all the work great work that cannabis talk radio and ali do for the community, but uh, Future Cannabis Project has been recording this session. So anybody who may have missed out on our conversation today, uh, it's been all simulcast on YouTube and recorded on YouTube. So be able to go and, and replay the entire video, uh, the entire session and, and learn more, uh, hear me repeat uh, some of those preparations and conversations and things that I discussed today. Uh, over the last uh, almost two hours time. Uh, it's been an awesome, awesome grow and tell. And, uh, you know, at this point, I'm just going to open it up. And, you know, anybody who has questions or comments who wants to come up, I know, Mr. Oscar, you wanted to come up and talk about your bone broth that we've talked about before in the past. Um, I see some other great folks in the, in the audience like London and, and Peter and Jared. Um, so anybody who wants to come up and ask questions or talk about Korean natural farming for a little bit before we uh, close down for the night, feel free to come on up. What, one of my quick questions is kind of, you know, first of all, I, I like to kind of step back and, you know, it's like, natural farming versus Korean natural farming, where you have kind of commonalities and cultures around the world, where if you said like, there's this new cool thing called Korean natural farming to someone in Brazil or somewhere in Africa or somewhere in Europe, they'd be like, yeah, I've done shit like that. You know, we've done stuff like that for generations. Um, yeah. In, 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 ter in terms of, of localizing stuff, like to me, the two inputs that are kind of not local are the rice and uh, the brown sugar. And, you know, rice, I feel like is kind of like you can get it in any grocery store. It's super cheap. So it's not really like an expensive input. But with the brown sugar have like I'm growing sorghum outside right now. It it, it are there natural thing things that you could grow locally that are high in sugar that you could use as a substitute for the brown sugar and, and some of those use cases. Yeah, absolutely. Two fantastic points. So, um, yes, no, thank you for bringing up the act, you know, right. So, uh, I, you know, at the very beginning, I mentioned that, you know, uh, a lot of us follow the school of Korean natural farming that was propagated and taught by Master Cho, uh, who took hundreds, of, you know, decades and, and probably centuries of Korean natural farming practices and, and brought them into this wonderful system that we follow today. But there are tons of tremendous natural farming techniques used all around the world and fermentation is a tremendous part of that. Um, it exists in so many aspects of not only agriculture, but also food culture. There are so many crossovers and connections between the two, especially in Asian cultures and a lot of the island cultures uh, where uh, the fermentation process is, is incredibly tied in with everything that they do. Um, and, and so it's definitely a part of it. And, and a lot of these natural farming practices that we follow um, that are, you know, 
more towards the regenerative or biodynamic or um, different types of practices that we follow are similar um, and have their own techniques. There's another well-known school of farming called Jadam, uh, where they uh, Jadam was actually written by the son of Master Cho. <laughs> so the gentleman who propagated Korean natural farming, his son, uh, uh, created a book called Jadam. And Jadam is a school of farming that's actually meant for those indigenous cultures and places where you don't have sh access to sugar or access to vinegar or access to power even. Uh, when we're making the liquid IMO, we're, you know, we're using a pump and we're using power. Uh, but Jadam and some of the practices in Jam Jadam use putrefaction and use uh, anaerobic processes and um, natural uh, convection processes using potatoes and, and some other really cool techniques uh, for these places where you may not have access to sugars or vinegars or, or uh, rice uh, for that matter, right? So there's definitely some other natural farming approaches. Um, there's other ways to uh, make a lot of these processes. Um, there's different uh, schools of thought on lactic acid bacteria. There's different schools of thought on uh, whether or not uh, you should keep different types of fermented plants together and apply them. Um, so one of the things that I like to use is a little bit off the Korean natural farming path uh, that I learned from a friend of mine, which is more of a natural farming technique, which is using a fermented aloe instead of a traditional FPJ. So um, I take aloe and chop it up and make a, you know an FPJ out of my aloe. So I mix it all up with sugar. But the twist is I add some lactic acid bacteria and ferment it with a closed lid for 30 days. So as opposed to using uh, no lab, just the plant and the sugar with an open breathable lid for seven days, I'm actually doing a fermentation for 30 days with a closed lid and lab added. And so I'm getting, um, I'm using that in addition to my normal uh, FPJ when I'm making my preparation. So I'm getting the benefit of having some additional lactic acid bacteria in there. I have this fermented material that has a different type of energy uh, and mineral uh, enzymatic approach than the other FPJs. So um, using other types of natural process farming techniques is absolutely important. Um, deep bed farming is another one that's really interesting. Uh, lots of different techniques, introducing vermiculture into some of your um, uh, processes. When I make my liquid IMO, a lot of the time I like to throw worm castings in the tea bag with the IMO. Um, so getting some additional compost tea capabilities out of those liquid IMOs kind of crossing into some of that natural farming. Sugars. Uh, so we can get into sugars. Um, I actually, uh, it's actually recommended to use natural cane sugars as opposed to brown sugar. So brown sugar tends to be made by taking white sugar 
and mixing it with molasses. So if you buy light brown sugar, it has uh, it is basically a processed refined sugar that has had molasses coated on it. If you use dark brown sugar, that has extra molasses on the sugar that coat it more. Um, what we try to use are natural cane sugars, uh, things that are less processed, um, uh, more of a, a natural approach. Uh, beet sugars, so if you want to, beets are something that produce a lot of natural sugars. Beets can be used as a, as a plant or something that you might want to grow. Uh, Nick mentioned stevia. He likes to grow stevia and use, utilize the sugars from stevia plants. Um, so it's a, you know, today that's a common sugar substitute that's used on the market. You can buy stevia in a package just like you can for sugar. Uh, and a lot of people use that as a, as a replacement for sugar. So um, again, that's another good common compound that you can use uh, to replace um necessarily a, a brown sugar or a cane sugar if you can't get that locally. Jason, can I ask you a question? Is that, uh, did I get all your stuff, uh, Peter, real quick before we go, Jolly? Yep, thank you. Perfect. All right, Jolly, what do you got? I don't know if I if I heard, like, you, you touched on the subject and you might have said something about it and do I add salt to the to the fruit ferment so it doesn't go alcohol or nope? Is it, no, just really nope. just a straight fruit, fruit and sugar. Alcohol, fruit and or sugar. Yeah. So um, for the anybody that's ever made uh, applejack or wine, <laughs> right? Uh, yeast is the component that actually will convert those sugars to alcohol. So you're, um, you're cutting down your fermentation process and you're not allowing, uh, you're trying to keep those natural, you're trying to keep those naturally occurring yeasts out of it. I wouldn't necessarily recommend using grapes because grapes are very high in those naturally occurring yeast. That's why grapes actually will naturally make wine when you crush them. The naturally occurring yeasts grow on the outsides of the skins. And when you combine that with the sugars and, and water and moisture in the middle of the fruit, it actually starts that process to create wines that eventually turn into alcohol as those yeasts uh, eat those sugars. So it will become a vinegar if I don't put if I don't put salt and I just let it rot into the jar. It'll just become like a vinegar kind of thing. Uh, the sugars are preserving it. Right. So that's the other thing, you know, jellies and jams don't turn to vinegar. It's because of the amount of sugar that you're putting into those jars that is helping preserve those fruits and stopping them from molding and stopping oh, so it from turning to vinegar. Sugar. It's just sugar, fruit and like sugar. sugar to the fruits. You take the sugar, you take your fruits and you chop them up. Yeah. Okay. Um, you want to chop your fruits up because the skins of fruits actually act as natural protection and will uh, cause some delay in the breakdown process. So you want to chop up your fruits. Uh, one of my favorites to do is I love to do in the fall is like an apple, blackberry, plum 
uh, using a lot of those natural fruits that are coming in this time of year, especially here in New England. We have a lot of apples and cranberries and things that we can make great FPJs out of. And um, I'm sorry, FFJs out of. And you doing just an equal weight of fruit to sugar. Okay. You want to fill that jar uh, three quarters of the way to, um, you definitely want to leave a good amount of some air, some space at the top. And then you want to cover that jar with a breathable lid. Um, paper towel or cloth works really well. Um, if you have happen to have a fermentation uh, lid of some kind, uh, you can use that, but those tend to be more for gassing things off and don't necessarily let the right amount of oxygen in. So you're better off using something like a paper towel um, or again, like a t an old t-shirt or a piece of cheesecloth or something along those lines. And it's just equal weights of sugar and fruit. You wait a week and you siphon off the liquid and save the liquid. The fruit you can then actually combine with an apple cider vinegar or a different type of vinegar with mother to create an amazing vinegar that is just absolutely delicious. Um, can be used in salad dressings and uh, cooking and other things as well. And what about um, bubbling and aerobic bacteria or can I bubble, like say I, I have a trash can full of stuff and I've been bubbling it for like a year. Um, that's, getting that into, that's, that's getting into the Dom area and it's really a bit outside uh, the topic for the night and, and a lot okay. of time. Yeah, um, but I would look for the book called Jadam, J-A-D-A-M, D as in David. Um, which was written by Master Cho's son. There's a whole bunch of preparations in there about just soaking plants in water and uh, putrefaction and other uh, means of breaking down those materials. I mean, you can take banana peels and soak them in water and then take that water a couple days later and apply them to your plants. Uh, there's lots of different types of natural approaches using similar uh, techniques that can be used, but that's not specifically part of Korean natural farming. Uh, we tend to stay away from anaerobic processes. We focus on aerobic processes. Um, and again, we're looking for things that are, uh, tend to smell sweet, um, not sour or rotted. Um, so I hope that helps Jolly. Oh yeah. Mr. Oscar, anything for you to <laughs> talk about tonight, sir? Yes, um, thank you for what you're doing. And um, uh, I came in a bit late. I'm glad you're recording this. I will get to hear my voice, and uh, that's a plus. Um, I came when you're talking about uh, burning bones, um, and and you know, charring them to soften them, uh, helping their breakdown. Um, I wanted to ask, um, what about uh, I I make broth with my bones, and after I'm done, they're brittle. Do do I still need to burn them? I actually don't. I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I imagine they would probably be good because you're. I think you're breaking out a lot of that organic matter. But my concern is that one of the things that we're taught when we're charring those bones is to get them beyond the point where they're brown, still. 
um, where we really want them to be that black or that white. And when, you know, you're not quite taking it to that phase when you're making a bone broth, right? You're, you're cooking it down and you're cooking it down and it's still going to be brown. It's not going to be black. It's not going to be carbonized. And I think you really need that carbonization for that process to work properly. Uh, okay, so it's not about being brittle or anything. It's about um, carbonizing because uh, that's they, my they understanding. Uh, okay, thank you so much. All right, do we have anybody else who has questions for us tonight? See if we see anything on the YouTube here. I can flip through. Um, yeah, so yeah, Jolly, and, and just to add on to your comment here, right? Jadam is is um, is a uh, was the the Jadam techniques came from the son of Master Cho. So, um, and a lot of the focus was on finding ways to introduce these natural techniques in places where you might not have these things available um, and other approaches to creating natural inputs and providing really, really helpful, um, beneficial inputs for your plants. Sorghum, I see some uh, Hawaii Sustainables got sorghums better than sugar, so that's great. Thank you for that. Um, and it's, you had a 12 foot plant this year, so monstrous. Uh, really, really great. Um, that's an awesome add-on, so thank you for that. Um, Southern Growers having some fun on here tonight. Absolutely. Good to see you there. Jolly Canna, Hillberry, Hillbilly Herb, Hawaii Sustainable. Appreciate that add-in. Gene Pieca, King Dolo, TDT Records. Thank you as well. Um good stuff on here. Um, so much KNF on tonight. Yeah, Wendy, is Wendy on right now? I know there's a lot of uh, overlap tonight. I know Steve Raisner, uh, he has his podcast Growing With Fishes started about uh, an hour and a half ago, I think. Uh, there's a lot of us who are on tonight. It just happens to be the way it is. Fortunately, we're recording it and it's available on YouTube so you can go back and listen. Uh, don't, I, don't, I don't get jealous. So if you want to go listen in on Steve or Wendy's conversations, and, and they're both incredibly knowledgeable. Um, I, am, uh, I have uh, no comparison to their level of skill and experience in, in these techniques. Um, they're tremendous mentors of mine as well. Uh, really, really just tr fantastic contributors to the community. And I highly recommend you go looking them up as well and the information they provide. All right. So um, I think if there's not really any other questions on here tonight um, and it uh, doesn't seem like a lot of additional stuff on the line, Let's see. Will inoculating IMO one or two with vermiculture bin be beneficial? So I would actually, you want to introduce that vermiculture, uh, vermicompost as part of an IMO five, not an IMO three. Uh, you want to add that in as your IMO five. IMO five is the stage where you would be introducing composts, uh, whether it's lobster compost or vermicompost or regular compost, uh, chicken shit, cow manure, things like that. All those composts, that's where you would add that in is in an IMO five uh, stage. So that's where those would go. 
uh, Stonard. I hope that helped answer your question there. Um, Southern Grower Root Cannabis Root Balls, that's great. Um, there is a ton of tremendous value in the root balls uh, because they have exudites and sugars and uh, minerals and nutrients in there. So just really, really good, great stuff. I know uh, uh, dandelion roots as well. Uh, dandelion roots are extremely tasty. So you can, if you, uh, you know, if you've got some dandelions in your yard and you pluck those out, save the roots, rinse them off and eat them. They're delicious. Uh, really, really great. All right. So I think um, that is going to wrap it up tonight. I would really appreciate Caleb, Jared, Infuse, London, Michelle, Jolly, Adam, Drew, Iceni, Rubigzak, Christina, Grandma, Kep. I'm going to have to go with that, buddy. I'm not too good on those uh, Cypric languages. Um, and of course, I really, as always, have to thank Nick for joining me earlier. And of course, Peter and the Future Cannabis Project for helping produce the show, providing the simulcast on YouTube, and all the tremendous work they do for our community and for agricultural community in general. Uh, just tremendous amount of wealth of knowledge that's on that channel. So please, if you have not already, uh, click on the green house at the top of the screen and join the Future Cannabis uh, group clubhouse on here on clubhouse and uh you know obviously give myself and peter a follow and join the youtube channel future cannabis project uh the future cannabis o2 channel is actually where these uh simulcast sessions are simul are uh, stored so if you jump on the main uh, uh future cannabis project page uh scroll down a little bit you'll see the accent the link to the future cannabis o2 channel and that's where these uh, recordings are stored. So thank you again for joining me on Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. And next week, what do we got? Next week, we have silica. We will be talking about silica uh, is our topic for next week. So we will be jumping back down the rabbit hole. Thank you for adding that, Peter. Uh, so we've uh, this, this was uh, Grow and Tell future cannabis project episode number four tonight and our first month doing this podcast peter believe it or not we got through a full month uh and i'm glad to be back and i appreciate the space so next week next thursday night at 9 p.m eastern 6 p.m pacific time, we will be talking about silica and i will be hopefully joined again by nick uh, as well as a few others as we discuss this really important mineral and compound uh, that is part of our garden. Uh, again, trying to, uh, we've been spending a lot of time over these uh, past episodes trying to highlight uh, some of the other aspects and uh, important points of cultivation. Uh, so we've covered enzymes, uh, we've talked about uh, flavonoids. Uh, we've talked about um, different uh, Korean natural farming inputs now and different ways to do that. We've talked about carbon, uh, which is really just uh, one of the biggest parts of farming that people just don't talk about. It's the most forgotten macronutrient. So um, really great to be able to bring uh, additional highlights 
uh, and conversation around some of these other aspects of cultivation. And I'm very uh, appreciative of all the folks who've been joining and uh, giving us all that extra uh, contributions and uh, collateral information. So thanks again to everybody for joining us tonight for Hot to Herbs Grow and Tell. I appreciate you all for being here. Thank you so much. And thank you, Peter. And I guess with that, we will close down the room for the night. Thank you for listening to a Future Cannabis Project podcast. For more information about the Future Cannabis Project, visit Future